The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Those other fools who are going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to seek to order my day, my life, my thinking, my thoughts, my money, my job, my marriage, my children, my neighborhood, and everything, so that I will be popular, but I know that if I do that, it will be to the cost of my eternal soul. If I count the cost of following Jesus, it means I'm going to be poor. I'm going to be hated. I'm going to weep. I'm going to be hungry. But what I gain is the immeasurable treasure that cannot compare to anything that this world has to offer. And I've counted that cost, and that is a cost I'm willing to pay to know eternal life. Anyone ever been there before? Jesus is saying, this is the family profile of the Savior's people. If you're here this morning and you're like, yeah, I can't raise my hand on that. I honestly want to be rich, satisfied, laughing, and popular. Jesus is then saying to you, that is the profile of not my people. Notice that as we've already intimated that this is not everyone. Poor, hungry, weeping, hated. In contrast to this, if you look on the back half of these verses, verses 24, 25, and 26. Notice that in contrast to the poor, hungry, weeping, and hated who are blessed stands the rich, satisfied, laughing, popular who are cursed. Woes are pronounced upon them. The woes of verses 24 through 26 are the exact opposite of the blessings of verses 20 through 23. Not because there's something inherently evil not because there's something inherently sinful about being rich or satisfied or laughing or popular. Don't hear what Jesus is not saying. Jesus isn't saying if you have cash, you're a sinner. He's not saying that. Jesus is not saying that like if you are satisfied, somehow you can't be a Christ follower. That if somehow you crack a smirk and a smile at a joke, Jesus is like, ah, you're going to hell. He's not saying that. And he's not saying that just because you might find yourself maybe a leader among people or whatever in some, in some way, shape, or form, this people of uh, popularity are speaking well of you, that somehow you can't be within the kingdom. Jesus is not saying that. But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying something like this. Jesus knows the temptations of being rich, satisfied, laughing, and popular can be to the detriment of your own eternal soul. Jesus knows that those who are rich in worldly possessions but impoverished in the things of God have their only happiness now. It is possible to pursue riches and material goods in a certain way now, to find happiness now, joy now, by getting all the goods now. But Jesus is saying to do that means you have received your consolation. In other words, your only happiness will be now. What you want is what you're going to get now, but then one day you're going to die. None of that will go with you. And then what you'll wake up to and you close your eyes in death, you're going to open up your eyes in eternity and find out just how impoverished your soul really is. 
Jesus knows that those who are satisfied now with all the world has to offer do so because they so often believe themselves to have no need for a Savior. Surely you've bumped into people like this. Good people, loving people, gracious people, kind people, hold down jobs, taxpayers, go to the voting booths when they're supposed to, talk to you, lend tools to you when you need a little help, will come over and help you shingle a roof when you need a little help, they'll lend you some some sugar and some salt when you need it. They're just good, good people. But when you begin to get into the things of spiritual matters, what you quickly learn is this. They are overly satisfied, stuffed full with the things of this world, and they just don't honestly see any need or lack in their life. And their thought either in mind or their thought expressed in their words is this, the Jesus thing is good for you, but I have no need for Jesus. Why? Look at how satisfied I am with all the stuff. And Jesus is saying here, one of these days you're going to wake up and see just how hungry you actually are in eternity. Jesus knows that those who laugh, again, this isn't, this isn't Jesus condemning laughter I think what we're going to find out for all eternity, how hilarious Jesus actually is. I think Jesus is going to be a riot. Don't think that Jesus is going to be standing around and having all earnest, like, you know, stiff neck collar and all these sorts of things. I think heaven is going to be an absolute riot because Jesus knows how to party and Jesus knows how to laugh. Jesus knows how to eat. Jesus knows how to drink. Jesus knows how to have a good time. This isn't Jesus saying, be, be earnest and serious and don't ever smile at a joke. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying, and you know these people as well, who go through their life with this kind of mentality. It's just a laughter kind of mentality. It's a condescending kind of mentality. It's the boastful, mocking laughter, that attitude and worldview that people adopt when they look around at all those foolish people with their God crutch. (sighs) Look at this guy. Look at this girl laughing in their heart and laughing in their mind at how stupid that person is because they need a crutch of some make-believe deity. And that leads them in their laughter to get their kicks at the expense of others now. But Jesus says at the judgment to come, you're going to be one who's mourning and weeping. And those who live for the approval of others, those who say what flatters others, those who say and order their days and do whatever they can to indulge others because they're driven by the fear of man, these people are on the path of eternal trouble. Thus, Jesus pronounces his woes. Again, Jesus' woes are not universal statements condemning rich, satisfied, laughing, or popular Just like the you of God's blessing is directed specifically to Jesus' disciples, so the you of these woes has a specific target as well. Remember the context. Those who seek the approval of the world, preferring all the world has to offer in opposition to Jesus. In other words, just think about the religious that we saw last week. I think some of these are in the crowd. And so what Jesus is doing when he's pronouncing the blessing, he's looking right at those who said, man, I've counted the cost. Jesus is worth it. Sign me up. I'm all in. And then Jesus knows enough that everyone in the crowd is not in that boat. And so then he steps over here and it's like as he shifts his gaze and he says, listen, I know there's some of you here who think you're in. You think you're among the Savior's people, but you're actually not among the Savior's people. 
Because the markers that identify you are rich, satisfied, laughing, popular. You're living for the now with no thought to eternity. But then there are those who are my people who recognize that life is not going to be so great in the now, but they are banking everything on eternity, namely in me. The point comes down to this, saints. There will be great contrasts between the Christ-rejecting world and the genuine disciple. That's what Jesus is showing us right now. The Savior's people are different. The Savior's people look at things differently, talk about things differently, watch things differently, go to different places. They engage in things differently. They speak differently. They live differently. That's why they're able to be hated, excluded, reviled, and spurned on the account of Jesus because this people who are counted among the Savior's people say this, because Jesus is my Savior, because Jesus is my King, because Jesus is my God, because Jesus is my Christ, because Jesus is my Lord, that means I do things and I don't do things, and that means you will look different from the world. These are the Savior's people is what Jesus is saying. The genuine disciple will stand out in decided contrast to the world that rejects the Lord Jesus Christ. But, Jesus says, if we fit this family profile of the Savior's people, we will know rejoicing and leaping for joy, for by God's grace we have God's blessing of great reward in heaven. So the question comes down to this, circling back to the question at the beginning of the sermon, which which group are you in? Which group are you in? Look into the mirror of the words of Jesus and what's the reflection that comes back? Are you among the poor, hungry, weeping, hated Savior people? Or are you among the rich, satisfied, laughing, popular, worldly people? You see, how we answer that question is not a matter of nothing. This isn't just me beating the point because I need to fill 45 minutes. It's me trying to help you understand and grasp this fact. It really does matter if you look into the attitude and the the desires and the drives of your heart, and you say the overall drive and desire of my heart is to be rich in the things of the world now, to be satisfied with the things of the world now, to laugh at those who think and speak and act otherwise, to do whatever I can to be popular in the eyes of the world now, Jesus is saying to you, it's invitational right now, you are going to find trouble one of these days, and that one of these days is definitely going to be on the day that you die and stand before me in judgment. But you don't have to be among that group. That's the invitation. You can be found to be among the Savior's people. If you go back to what we've been talking about for multiple weeks, when we come, repent of our sin and seek the Savior, for the forgiveness of our sins. We can be found to be among the Savior's people, which is the best news in the world. The best news in the world. Which group are you in? So the Savior's people have God's blessing. That's point number one. Point number two, it's our last point this morning, the Savior's people give their lives away. That's verses 27 through the end of our text this morning, verse 36. The Savior's people give their lives away. Look, starting verse 27, so Jesus says, I say to you who hear, those who have ears to hear, here's what I'm saying to you. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. 
So Jesus just outlined for us in verses 20 through 26 the profile of what it looks like to be part of the Savior's people. What is he doing now? He's now saying, if you find yourself to be within that profile of the Savior's people, what does that practically mean in everyday life? If what I just said is true, that the Savior's people will look like decidedly different people compared to those not among the Savior's people, what do the Savior's people do? What are the things that will cause them to stand out and be different? How will they look? How will they act? How will they live? How will they speak? Where will they go? Where will they not? What does this look like? Jesus is not leaving that, that open for us to fill in on ourselves. He lays it out for us in verses 27 through 35. He is showing how we live like the Savior's people in these verses. And in short, the distinctive mark of the Savior's people is summed up in the command to love. So stinking practical, is it not? But this isn't, again, a generic call to love. This is love with a specific group in mind. What does it say there in verse 27 and 35? Love your who? Enemies. Love your enemies. Again, the context here is important because like before, this is not a generic universal call just to love everybody. It's not like Jesus is saying, and go out and love. Just throwing love candy out of the parade, just peppering everybody with the love command. No, he's got a very specific command, very specific group. Love your enemies. That's the specific call. And who are the enemies here? It's not the guy who stubbed your toe at work. It's not the, the woman who dresses in some way that you don't like, man, you know, they're really an, an enemy to my eye. Like, right, it's, it's none of these things. Jesus has already explained to us who these enemies are in these verses. The enemies here are those who hate you, exclude you, revile you, curse you, abuse you, and spurn your name as evil, key phrase, on account of the Son of Man. See, some of us have enemies because we're big jerks. Pardon my words, but maybe not. You're a big turd. You go to work and you're just obnoxious. You're annoying. You're gross with your actions. You're gross with your words. And people don't like you. That's your fault. Some of us know what it's like to be hated because we claim the name of Jesus. Some of us know what it's like to be excluded from the group at work because we dared to take a stand to say, I'm not going to do this because Jesus wouldn't want me to. Well, if that's the case, you're no longer in this text string. Some of us know what it's like to have our name spurned as evil because she's the Jesus woman. Don't want anything to do with her. The key phrase here is you have enemies because you live and you look like Jesus. They hate the gospel, thus they hate gospel people. You are a gospel people, thus you are hated. That's your enemy right now that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying, those who are among my people are blessed because they're poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. And because they're hated on account of Jesus, you will further prove yourselves to be my people when you live and respond to these kinds of enemies in particular ways. And that is what the remainder of these verses are about. You see, ultimately, Jesus 
is giving us a call to love others as God has loved us. What we discover in the gospel, when the gospel comes home to roost, the good news that Jesus is a great Savior who saves great sinners among whom I am the chief, when that reality in all of its fullness begins to sink its gravity and its weight into our souls, what we begin to discover, discover in the gospel is that God loves his enemies and he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. That's what he says down there in verse 35, Jesus says. In his letter to the Christians in Rome, the apostle Paul picks up this truth and reminded the Christians then and us now that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, that's how he shows his love for us, what? Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, there's the same word, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The apostle John picks this up, carries this truth forward when he wrote in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, this is love, let me define it for you. John says as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, you don't get to define it, God gets to define it, and here's God's definition of what love is. Not that we loved God, but here it is, that he loved us. Loved us because we were so lovely. Loved us because we were so great. Loved us because we were so perfect and pure and never sinned. No, he loved us even as sinners and enemies of God. He loved us. Sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's these truths that Jesus is laying down as the practical model which defines his people. Mercy is the nature of God. Look at verse 36. Mercy is the nature of God. This is why Jesus says in verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Listen, loving your enemies as you've been loved by God is merciful. Do you see what Jesus is saying? When you first met the love of God in a saving way, were you his friend or were you his enemy? You were his enemy. Thus, you are qualified to say, God loved me, not because I was his friend. God loved me when I was a raging enemy against him. And his love crushed my soul because his love I did not deserve. And the grace and the mercy he showed to me, his enemy, wooed me and drew me to him. And so now I am qualified to go out into the world and say, when this person who hates God points their hostility to me and hates me, I am now fully qualified to be able to love them because I know what it's like to have been first loved in this same way. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying. This is what practical, everyday, Savior people life looks like. Doing good to those who hate you like God has done to you. This is merciful. Giving your blessing to those who curse you. Giving your prayer for those who abuse you. Giving your cheek. Giving your tunic. Giving to those who demand from you and not demanding back in return. This is how the Savior's people live. And this is how the Savior's people prove to be the sons of the Most High. Why? Because loving your enemies... And doing good to those who hate you makes us a child of God? Is Jesus teaching 
do-goodism so that we can earn something from God. He is not. No, but because, listen, when we love enemies and do good to haters, we mimic the mercy we've received from the Father. That is what Jesus is saying. And when you are on the receiving end of abuse, the receiving end of hatred, the receiving end of reviling, suffering on account of the name of Jesus, and what comes out of you is mimicked mercy like you've received Jesus saying, that right there. That right there is what it looks like to be one of my people. In other words, in our suffering, when we suffer on account of Jesus, our true family likeness is revealed when what comes out of us is like the Father. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, the Savior's people are a suffering people. The Christian disciple will frequently experience intense opposition. The hatred of the world will be directed at Jesus' followers just as it was directed at Jesus. But listen, what dumbfounds the enemies of the gospel and what bewilders the enemies of gospel people is not loving those who love you. Anybody can love those who are being loved by someone. What dumbfounds the enemies and bewilders the enemies of the gospel is not you doing good to those who do good to you. It's not lending to those from whom you expect to receive, but rather gospel enemies are confounded when we mimic the Father's mercy. After all, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So when they come and you have hatred and reviling and scorn and vitriol poured out on you because you claim the name of Jesus, the world would say, give them justice. Give them what they deserve. Be angry back, revile back, scorn back, trash their name. But when Jesus' people say, no, in this moment, when I've received this, I'm not going to give justice, which is giving them right back what they gave me. I'm going to give them mercy, which is I'm not going to give them what they deserve in this moment. Why? Because that is what I've received. He did not give me what I deserve. Every sinner here in this place, which is everyone, by the way, all of us, what we deserve for our sin is justice. We deserve eternity in hell because we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. Mercy from God shown to us is this. I know you're a sinner, says God. I know what you deserve, says God, but I am not going to give you what you deserve. And then lo and behold, we don't see just mercy from our Father. Then we see grace on top. And he says, not only am I not going to give you what you deserve, I'm going to turn around and give you what you don't deserve. And it buckles the knees. When that reality oozes out of us in those moments, these are Savior's people, says Jesus. So when gospel enemies pour out excluding and reviling and name-spurning abuse upon the Savior's people, but then are met with the mercy of love, goodness, generosity. Jesus says, this is how you can know someone is among my people. When unmerited mercy given flows from unmerited mercy received, this is what Jesus' people living looks like. Anyone here got this code correct? 
Come on, hands up. We need to parade you down to the front. I'm going to give you the mic now, and you're going to show us how it's all done. Anybody here got this? Okay. Anyone here need help with this? Yeah, amen. Pastor Jonathan is the chief. I'm going to lead, I'm going to lead in the parade, right? I'm out front with the big baton and twirling. I'm, I'm the one who, who's showing us how much we need this. Friends, it's easy to pull this truth from Jesus in this teaching forward to our day and just to see the extreme relevance of what Jesus is saying. Hostility to Jesus and the suffering of Jesus' people on account of his name, whether it be from legislators, media, co-workers, neighbors, friends, or family. It's just nothing new. The world would say, fire for fire, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If they're going to treat you this way, Christians rise up and just batter on back. I dare say, to our great shame, many Christians would argue the same way. What if that politician's going to act that way? Then I'm going to. My neighbor's going to talk me that way. I'm going to. But Jesus says, actually, when that happens to you, try doing this return hatred with mercy, return hatred with love, return hatred with doing good. Return that hatred with some generosity. As this happens, and the wine press of suffering on account of Jesus crushes us, think of this. The days going forward, it's, it's like a wine press. It's going to crush in. When a wine press crushes a grape, what comes out of a grape? What comes out of a grape is juice that looks and smells and tastes like a grape. It's the suffering and the crushing of the press, in that sense, upon the grape that reveals what's actually inside the grape. It'd be like an olive saying, I'm a grape. And then it's like, well, let's just test this. It's not the good times that are going to prove the olive is confused a little bit. It's going to be going through the crushing and the suffering of the press on that olive. And when what comes out of that olive is not grape juice, then we get to see, ah, I know what you were saying. You thought this. You're not a grape, though. You're actually an olive. And in the same way, saints, the goodness of suffering on the account of Christ has a way of crushing us and exposing what's actually in us. And my hope and my prayer for us is that the wine press of suffering on account of Jesus crushes us. And when it does, the merciful juice of unmerited love to the ungrateful and the evil will flow from us and so prove us to be among the Savior's people. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. This is overly challenging. And I dare say we just barely, barely scratched the surface of all that is in this text. Man, there's so many other things here, Jesus. Your teaching is so rich. But in your kindness, what you, what you don't do is you don't overload us. And so I'm just going to ask and lean on that kindness right now. Lord, in all the things that were said by your Spirit, would you just make one truth stand out among the rest? One word that challenges us to stand out among the rest. And that over the remaining moments of our time together and beyond, that we would just be haunted by that truth.
be haunted by that challenge. Wrestle with what you're revealing to us and not let go until we have found that blessing of life change as a result of wrestling with you in regard to the very thing right now that you're pressing onto our heart. Jesus, we ask this for your name, for your glory, and for your fame. Amen.